So what got you into counseling? Well, it's honestly, it's what I always wanted to do, but I didn't really understand that that's what I wanted to do when I was making my plan for my life in high school. All I could explain to a guidance counselor or like uh, admissions counselors at the university was that I wanted to help people. So they kind of just funneled me into healthcare. And then there I realized I didn't want to do the medical stuff. <laughs> I just wanted to do the talk to people things. Yeah, I can actually remember my last, one of my last days of my rotation at St. Paul's Hospital. Some of the things I saw, I was like, you know what? I'm pretty sure I'm more squeamish than this. I can't, I can't do this. Yeah. <laughs> what was the tipping point? The, the drains and the dripping wounds and the, yeah, no, not for me. Okay. <laughs> so then how did it transition then? What was that process? Yeah. So then at that point, because I was already halfway through a like professional degree program, you basically just go sit with an academic advisor and they explain to you what your kind of options are pathway wise. If you want to do a four-year degree or a five-year degree, what your credits transfer into and all those kinds of things. And the swap for me would, would have been very easy between teaching and social work. So I just thought I'd give social work a whirl and see how it goes. So how's it been going? Good. Yeah. What's the most enjoyable aspect of it? Honestly, working with people, Get, getting to know them, getting to know their stories, getting to know why their favorite color is blue and, and why why they like this particular movie. Or We're just a collection of all the people we've ever loved, right? So getting to know those parts of people has been just such a privilege. Sounds like you really enjoy understanding how people interact. Yes, very much so. <laughs> so what's your main role? What do you generally do? Right now, I'm in private practice counseling. So I, I take on clients that are looking for support, sometimes managing disorders like depression and anxiety, or sometimes just looking to figure out what their path is in life and, and what's next for them. Less so from a clinical aspect, but more so just from a guidance aspect. So what's somebody's step one usually? Everyone's is very, very different. Some people have such wonderful foundational skills of self-awareness and of resilience, and they don't necessarily need to start with the coping mechanism side of things. Whereas for some people, they would have to start there. So some people don't have self-awareness. Mm -hmm. So, so you work on expanding their ability to like understand what their inner narrative sounds like or understand what is driving their behavior rather than just allowing themselves to behave on autopilot all the time. So you make it so they start assessing the reason they're doing something. Well, you try. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that willingness comes down to the, the client being open to figuring that out about themselves. I feel like the way that we grow the most as people is through the parts of ourselves that we don't like through figuring out where those come from and why we don't like them and why we avoid them, right? So when we're ready to look at those things is oftentimes when we're ready to undo some of those habits and patterns that have kept us stagnant for a while. So you're bringing the invisible things to light. Trying to for some, yeah. How do you go about doing that? It's funny. I, I knew that you were going to ask me a lot of very like tangible questions about like, how do you do this? And what's step by step by step? And all those kinds of things. But I think what I've learned throughout the years of my practice and what I have found to be the most cool about working with people is that everyone's process is really, really different, right? Sometimes people find those things on their own through conversation with you. Sometimes it takes repeated conversations about the same kinds of things for it to 
click for people. Sometimes it takes different kinds of tools and modalities and they can be told by various different professionals that this is going on for them. But until they land on that knowing themselves, um, it takes some time. So they have to make that conscious choice then. Yeah. What's the most difficult situation to get somebody to get to that first step? I think that comes from a couple different places. Like some some people are just resistant to change for a myriad of reasons. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. Perhaps they've watched family members try and fail. Perhaps they've tried and failed. And sometimes it's just people don't see their own potential. They don't see their own magic. They don't see that they have more to offer than they feel like they do. And that can be really hard when you see so much for somebody else and they don't see any of that for themselves. So you can see it, but it doesn't matter until they realize it. Yeah. When you were talking about that inner narrative, what exactly is that? It sounds different for everyone. We all have some sort of inner dialogue or some sort of thought process within our own minds about what what we're doing throughout the day. Sometimes for, for people, that's a really anxious place. Say you go for dinner with some friends and you come home and you're thinking about you know, every social cue that you missed. Did I interrupt that person? Did I upset them? Right. Sometimes that's a really critical place. And for some people, it's a really logical place. This weekend, I have to do the groceries and this and that and the other thing. And that's the way that they think. But everyone's is very, very different. And I think what's important for people is the ability to curate a place that isn't scary for them. It's not too anxious or we're able to identify and label. These are anxious thoughts. These aren't actually me right? And disconnect from some of the, the ways that our brains can make us worry and stress unnecessarily. So you start by labeling how they're feeling? Yeah, because our feelings drive our behavior. The way that we feel impacts the way that we think, which impacts the way we make decisions. So if you can understand how you're feeling and the fact that you're having a feeling, you're just going to be feeling a bit lost in the world. So you kind of give them a map or a compass. We try, yeah. <laughs> what are some of the tools you use to gauge how you feel? Yeah. So um, there's tons of different modalities that you can go along with. One of the newest ones that's kind of come out um, is somatic experiencing. So this modality works really well for people that have like complex trauma or have had some really significant things happen to them that have altered the way their nervous system functions. Their nervous system actually picks up feelings in a hypervigilant way. So they have to learn that their feelings are safe in their bodies and it's not something to panic over. Whereas Maybe people who have kind of shut their feelings out or repressed things would have to just learn to identify that feeling in the first place because they've never made the brain-body connection between that feeling and the way that it impacts their thoughts and decisions. So how does that work where they feel they're in danger in their own body? Mm -hmm. What you learn when you're in counseling school or taking any sort of neuroscience courses is like, the, the tiniest little skim off the top. So this is very like generalized and, and Cole's notes. But basically what's going on there is we, we have a, a part of our brainstem. It's called the amygdala. What that organ is responsible for is kind of protecting us from anything that's ever made us feel unsafe, uncomfortable, unwanted, any of those sort of survival-based emotions. And what that organ will do, I don't know if organ is the right word, but what that part of our brainstem will do is store that information from that day. So maybe it was the color of that person's shirt. Maybe it was the song on the radio. Maybe it was a smell. Maybe it was the way someone said something to you. But they it holds on to that information. And then it kind of behaves like a, like a paranoid grandmother in the back of your mind. When you bump into something similar, it'll start to kick on those survival mechanisms and go, hey, this is something that's happened before that's made you feel really uncomfortable. Do you think maybe you 
you shouldn't do this. For some people, those uncomfortable instances have come in relationships or in their career or with their parents or with really like core aspects of our lives as people. So then when they go to walk into new relationships or new work, they have all this fear built into them that isn't necessarily real or rational, but comes from experiences that they've had in the past. So there's a significant amount of rewiring that would need to be done there. So then with that amygdala, you're going autopilot. Yes. And then you actually have to recalibrate their amygdala. Yeah. Or or support people to do it for themselves. Because I think that's one of the hardest parts about being a helping practitioner is all, all I can do is offer what I know and offer what creative solutions I come up with and try and have supportive conversations with people. Right. So if those things don't resonate or they aren't consistent with the tools or the tools perhaps don't land for them and I don't have the right one for them at the time, they hopefully they'll find someone that does have the right tool for them. What's a difficult case you've had that has changed? So it started out difficult Mm -hmm. and then one day it clicked. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I, I honestly have probably quite a few just funny instances of you know, having conversations with people in December and then having similar conversations with people in June and them going, oh, wow, that makes so much sense. No one's ever explained it to me that way before. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm thinking, yeah, we I did explain this to you eight months ago. But I think that just speaks to how impactful the readiness within is, right? If people don't see themselves as people that are capable of change, of people who deserve a good and happy life, they're not going to make choices that are aligned with that. And therefore, their cognition isn't even going to make a window for those types of thoughts and possibilities to come through. So it's just really interesting to see. But probably one of the most like physically visible changes that I saw in a client was a, a person that I had worked with who just had probably some of the most significant anxiety I've ever seen in, in my life. It took months just to get this person from a, a phone counseling session to a Zoom counseling session. And then it took another number of months just to get this person to the office. And then we did it in their car because it just the the fear of driving their car and going into a building was just paralyzing. What made it so they kept going? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's the craziest thing. I mean, I so with counseling, you can you can kind of walk into particular disorders, right? Say anxiety as an example, and you you would go, yeah, okay, there's some cognitive behavioral therapy type things to do there. Making sure that the client understands that anxious thoughts aren't their thoughts, it's their anxiety, right? And being able to wrangle those things. Then there's dialectical behavioral therapy where we teach people to accept that they're going to feel that way and try and cope with it anyways. Then there's the somatic experiencing therapy, which helps people feel safer with those feelings of anxiety in their body. Now, these are all clinically proven, researched modes of supporting these people. Oh, so you can pick one of those three. There And there's even more than that. Yeah, there's <laughs> the, more that I'm not even trained in. But those are the ones you're trained in. So the first one is that accept that these thoughts aren't you, they're the anxiety. And then the second one is accepting that thought. And then the third one is knowing that those thoughts are safe. And those feelings are safe. Because I think that what psychology has missed about anxiety in particular is the physical manifestations of it. A lot of people who have been diagnosed with IBS actually have an anxiety disorder. Is that irritable bowel syndrome? Yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> Be, because what a, what the that amygdala will do is it'll shut down the part of your nervous system that's responsible for resting and digesting. 
So if that nervous system isn't working and you're not digesting your food properly, it's sitting in places that it's not meant to be sitting and therefore irritating your gut biome. So these thoughts and feelings will manifest physically. Yes. Psychology has known that for a long time, but it just has never been articulated, I don't think, in that clear of a fashion for people. So what was unexpected for you when you first started? Um, like from a, from a sense of like clients, like stories and behavior, just from my own experience. I'd say from what you thought the profession would be to what it really is. Uh, yes, it is lonelier than I thought, especially in private practice. Working for a community-based organization where you're doing things within the community and, and consistently around clients and around a team is a much different atmosphere than working one-on-one with clients in an office all day and not, not talking to other professionals as much. Oh, so the loneliness comes from only talking to your clients. Yes, because in, in a therapist position, I'm not allowed to, to share a whole lot of anything with anybody due to confidentiality. To, to tell clients names or, or deep details about what had gone on for them would be a breach and therefore unethical based upon my code of ethics that I work under. Unless you're in a supervision hour to get support on your clients, you're not talking to anybody about work, right? You don't have that offloading of coworker communication and connection. So you can't talk about to anybody who's not a professional in the field. Yes. And you can only talk about it with like your supervisor. How do you manage the emotions that you go through all day? It's hard. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Especially when, when you're carrying a caseload, that's too big. And I think if there's anything that younger practitioners need to be taught and guided towards, it's understanding what their limits are and understanding that their limits are going to be different than other people's. There are people that do very well carrying 40 hour a week caseloads as therapists. However, that's not often best practice, right? We need time to research. We need time to decompress and have enough space for all the clients that we see. When did you realize that? Probably about a year ago, I would say. So what made it so it came to light? I think it was just being honest with myself about how hard it was to carry all of that and how heavy the caseload was and the fact that I just simply was working too much. So you admitted to yourself that it was too much. Mm-hmm. How'd that conversation <laughs> go with yourself? It was good. It just kind of puts puts into perspective like, okay, I'm acknowledging that I'm giving so much of myself at work that I don't get to be myself outside of work because I'm too exhausted emotionally. Not having as much presence at home, not wanting to reach out to my own family members as much, all those kinds of things simply just because I didn't have the bandwidth Oh, so you actually saw Mm -hmm. it degrading over time and you decided to correct it. Mm Mm-hmm. How's it been? How do you keep yourself in check? Well, I mean, it's only been probably a month or two since I quit that position that I was in to start for myself so that I can decide how much I need to work. Because that's the other part of it too, is when you're working for an agency or you're working for someone and you're under a contract, you're expected to fulfill a certain amount. Yeah. So now that you're on your own, Mm -hmm. how is it different? I get to decide what my hours are. I get to decide when I work and when I don't work, when I have time off, how many people I see in a day, when I need to take a break without risking my income. What's the best part about working for yourself now? Having enough of myself for all aspects of my life. Being able to wake up in the morning and like go to jujitsu with my partner and walk my dogs and do all those things happily and not feeling cranky or 
annoyed because I don't have the extra energy for those things, right? (laughs) Having the space to still be myself a little bit and also having more space and time to do research and to, to learn so that I have so much more to offer my clients. What are you researching currently? I'm doing some less clinical research right now, which has been really fun. But from a clinical side, I'm taking a somatic experiencing course. So what are they covering in it? That is the the probably the most up-and-coming modality for trauma treatment because it works specifically on the somatic experience. So the feelings that people have in their bodies. Because what we've learned in the last probably 10 or 15 years, don't quote me on that, um, <laughs> is... Human beings are not just top down. So for the longest time, we thought that our brain kind of governed everything. And if we had a thought, that would create a feeling in our bodies. What we've discovered is our nervous system is much more complex than that. And sometimes our bodies have a feeling that triggers our brain to think things. A lot of times, especially with people that have had complex trauma, their body will have a response to something before they're cognitively even aware of it. And then oftentimes what will happen is they're brain will then try and make sense of it and go, okay, well, I'm feeling this way. What is it? Am I mad at my husband? Do I not like my job anymore? What? Why am I feeling this way? And they don't make the connection to perhaps that being trapped in their nervous system from an experience in the past. So how does it get trapped in your nervous system? That's the interesting part, right? It's that amygdala again coming into play. So our bodies feel something and our amygdala goes, oh, that's familiar. What is this? We don't like it. So if you felt pain somewhere physically, it can transgress into your mind Mm -hmm. and make you feel a certain emotion. Yes. And most of the time, like a pain example would be someone losing a limb or a finger or something like that. And then having that phantom pain, that pain's not coming from anywhere real, but the brain thinks that pain is there or from a mental health disorder type place. Most of the time we'd feel like a sense of panic or We feel stressed or our heart rate would increase or we feel sick to our stomach, that kind of thing. And then our brain's going to try and figure out why we feel that way because there's sometimes just a bit of a disconnection between those two things. Oh, so your brain will kind of rationalize what's happening sometimes. Yeah. So you actually have to then train your brain to understand what's happening in the body? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yep. And that's where that self-awareness piece comes in of like, okay, Am I just feeling anxious today because I'm feeling anxious or am I feeling anxious today because I've legitimately forgotten something or I'm feeling stressed or excited about something? Yeah. What are some physical signs of being anxious? The sick to the stomach a lot, especially in young children. They'll often say, mommy, my tummy hurts. I'm nervous to go to school. Lots of times in young kids, it's the the stomach hurting, like pain in your palms, sweating, increased heart rate, you feel like you can't breathe, going to the washroom a lot, headaches, you can get tension headaches in your shoulders from carrying lots of stress. People can get pain in their lower back from carrying stress there. Everyone's body's just a little bit different. Yeah. So then when you feel these feelings or you hear somebody saying this, how do you guide them through that it's physical and not mental? Again, is is an individualized experience because it would come down to why that person's coming to you in the first place. Right? Are they coming to you because their doctors have said, oh, your stomach problems are anxiety, they're anxiety, they're anxiety, you need to go talk to someone? Or are they coming to you because they know they have anxiety and they haven't realized that it's probably contributing to their stomach problems and, and otherwise as well? Because each path is going to be a little bit different. The person that comes because their doctor told them to, I'd probably hop right to some CBT stuff, some writing exercises, really getting them to 
practice differentiating between thoughts that are their own and thoughts that are manifestations of this overactive amygdala that's creating extra stress in their brain. Whereas someone who's coming to me that's just starting to figure out that they're anxious, I would probably outline that anxiety can present in all of these different ways and teach them to start being more aware of their bodies, of their thoughts in general. And we'd start from that place. So you start with the book work on somebody who's been sent to you. Mm-hmm. And then you start with the feelings with somebody who chooses to come. Yeah. When did you discover that? Trial and error. <laughs> <laughs> um, having having a supervisor is great. Um, but sometimes, admittedly, you don't have the time to have a supervision session in between every single counseling session you have. So you you go through your repertoire of, of courses that you've taken and resources that you have. And you go, okay, well, we're going to try this and see how they respond to it, see how it resonates. So what's the biggest lesson you've learned since you started counseling? Don't be too hard on yourself. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> there, there is definitely a period of time there where I was doing so much more work than my clients were. Not, not from a place of, of judgment by any means. My, my clients work very hard and they're wonderful people. But from a place of like, I place too much responsibility for their well-being on myself. All I can do is explain and offer the tools and explain and offer that this could possibly help you. You do with that information what you please. Oh, but before you felt that your role was to carry them over that threshold. Yes. Yeah. And if I didn't say the right thing or have the right tool, they wouldn't get better and that would be my fault. But that's not the reality of it at all. And taking neuroscience courses has actually helped me with that so much because now I I understand that that's just how the brain works. If we don't feel like we want to do something, if we don't feel like we can do something, we're not going to. So it really comes down to the motivation to succeed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And where that comes from for people, because so many of us that comes from like external validation, right? We're hoping that, you know, maybe our parents actually tell us they're proud of us or someone will like something on social media, right? It's really... We have to get clear on what's driving our behavior and why we're doing it and what's the motivation for it. Because sometimes we're just doing things because it's A, the next logical choice based on society's expectations or because someone else thinks it's cool. Oh, so you actually have to understand that this is my decision instead of the world telling you, but you have to differentiate from it. Yeah, that radical accountability piece. People have said to me and probably will in the future you know, oh, I, well, I went to school for my dad and now I have this law degree and all the student loans and I hate my job and now what am I going to do? And I have so much empathy and sympathy for a situation like that. It's hard. Of course, we want to make our parents proud. We want to do the things that make them happy because that's wh- how we're wired as human beings. There's also that accountability piece of, okay, but you you did all 10 years. You finished the schooling and you've been working this whole time while you're unhappy. What are we going to do about that? How can we move you forward from that? Do we work on the acceptance of like, okay, I did this because I thought it was the best thing to do. It makes me a good amount of money. I have to pay off my student loan. I'm going to work on finding feelings of acceptance for this choice that I made. Or are we helping you to change it so you can do something different and feel better about it? That's up to you. But ultimately, you're the person that has to decide. So you can either accept it or change it. Typically, yeah. What do we do to accept it? Everyone's a little bit different again. (laughs) What are your your tools you use for the acceptance? Yeah, some people benefit a a lot from a mantra-based practice where they come up with some sort of affirmation that they walk themselves through every time they bump into a feeling of, resentment or frustration. 
Sometimes we do cognitive behavioral writing type work. Sometimes I'll encourage people to talk to their family members or talk to the people in their lives that they feel are putting pressure on them. A, from a place of like having healthy relationships, right? We need to be open and honest with the people in our lives. But sometimes we feel like people are doing things and they're not. You go to dad and you say, hey, I feel like you put so much pressure on me to go to law school. And he goes, you could have told me you were going to be an astronaut and I would have been happy for you. Oh, it wasn't even there, but he or she perceived it was there. Perception and intention are oftentimes different. And that's why communication is so important. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So then what were you talking about before with the inner mantra? How does that look? Oftentimes what I will encourage clients to do is A, do some research. So go look on the internet. What's an affirmation for feeling more grateful? What is an affirmation for forgiving someone? What is an affirmation for letting go of resentment or regret from the past? And then what what I'll get them to do is I'll get them to practice one that they found that they liked a little bit. And then I'll get them to come up with their own. Because most of the time we know exactly what we need to hear. We know exactly what support we want from other people. It's all within us, but we just don't know how to ask for it. Oh, so that comes back to that inner narrative you were talking about. Yeah. Okay. What's this word you were saying? What's complex trauma? Right. So basically where the complex word comes in is when you've discovered that the trauma that's happened to someone has affected not only their mindset, but also their body and their nervous system. So does that come back to the tummy hurting and... Yep, those somatic experiences of their trauma as well. So what are some manifestations you've seen that surprised you? Probably the the development of tics. So the development of what would typically be presented in a Tourette's type of syndrome coming from trauma that occurred because this person worked so hard to repress those feelings. They didn't understand or have the support to process them appropriately. So the stress just turned into these ticks that started to happen for them. There was so much stress and so much energy in the brain that the brain wants you to do something about it, wants it to be fixed, wants a release from it. So that's what their brain decided to do. So a tick can be solved sometimes by going through all the steps to figure out where it came from. Yep. Trying to ex- um, weight gain as well, sexuality. So these are just coping mechanisms for yes. trauma that you don't understand. Yeah, sometimes we're hiding from ourselves. What's a memorable time of a client's reaction? As in like they understood that that was them hiding a little bit. Yeah, that revelation moment. Where I've seen that most typically is in couples work, is realizing that people are in trauma bonded relationships or they're in relationships because they don't feel like they deserve any better. Right. And that's what has them stuck there. That has probably been the most impactful. I was actually really thankful to be coached the way that I was to do couples work because coming from crisis work into private practice, I hadn't actually had a lot of experience working with couples outside of the acute domestic violence end of things, which doesn't often leave you with a lot of tools for ongoing work, right? So I was coached to work with these people, not only together, but individually as well, which was fantastic because it it gave me the opportunity to get to know each of them as individuals as well and, and work really hard to understand, okay, Person A is coming from over here and person B is coming from over there and they they kind of want to land, you know, on W together. How am I going to get them there? Whereas sometimes when you just work with a couple, you're missing all of that past history, all of that individual stuff that is going to affect how the relationship functions. So then if you work on them 
as individuals, they can come together as a stronger yes, couple. Because in those individual sessions is oftentimes where those things might come to light of, I don't feel like I could be in a better relationship, but that makes me feel upset because it's tied to my self-esteem and my self-esteem is low. That's not actually the responsibility of that person's partner. That's a responsibility of yourself to make sure that your self-esteem and your confidence is in a good and happy place so you don't sabotage your relationship. Not intentionally, but it happens. Oh, so sometimes you could be putting too much on your partner for your own emotional well-being. Absolutely. We are a very codependent society for sure. (laughs) Yeah. So you also work with couples. Yes, not anymore now that I'm on my own. Couples you need to work with in person, I believe. What's a common theme you'd see for couples to come in? Yeah, uh, lack of communication, 100%. People get themselves into these ruts, right? They do they do the next logical thing. You date someone for, you know, five to seven years and people go, okay, well, why aren't you married yet? So you go, oh, okay, well, I guess we should get married. Then you get married and they're like, oh, well, when are you guys having kids? You're like, well, I guess we'll have kids. So many times people just do it because they think that's what they should do. They don't sit down with their person and go, okay, this is what having kids is going to look like. That means you're not going golfing with your buddies on Saturday. And that means I'm no longer going on girls trips to Mexico. And we're, we're going to do these things instead. And these are going to be your jobs. And these are going to be my jobs, right? We just blindly walk into this extremely large responsibility of doing life with someone without any prior conversation. (laughs) And then there are all these unmet expectations and unmet needs all the time that neither party knows how to communicate appropriately. Then it just breeds resentment. He never did this. She always did that, so on and so forth. And it creates this grand canyon of a divide in people. And then you got to go back and peel back all those layers of, oh, well, she's upset with you from this thing 10 years ago when you didn't stand up for her. And that's what's breeding. It's just, it's such a web. Yeah. (laughs) But it seems it starts with they both entered the relationship with an assumption and never confirmed it with the other one. Yes. Yep. And and to be fair to human beings, you know, everywhere, um, that's just generational learning, right? We we learn how to human from our parents. So if your parents weren't people that sat down with you and said, you know, Tony, what what is your expectation of today? What are you looking for? How can I make sure your needs are met? Um, they're not going to know to facilitate that for other people in their lives, right? So it's a space of collective growth. Yeah, they don't even know it exists Mm -hmm. to be able to recognize it. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, and it's just dysfunctional patterns that get passed down. So again, it comes back to you're teaching couples how to be aware of what's going on and not be on autopilot. Yeah, yeah. What are some of the tools you give couples to enhance their communication? Yeah. So I I really, really like all of the work of the Gottman Institute. They're doing really great stuff. He's got a whole book and courses that therapists can take and things like that. And he preaches practicing things like micro romance. Maybe you're taking your dog for a walk that morning and you see a nice flower. Maybe it's just a dandelion, but you bring it back for your wife just because it's a nice thing to do. Remember that her favorite dish at a restaurant is X, Y, and Z or you pick up her favorite candy bar when you get gas at the gas station, right? Those little tiny goldfish feeding time worth items. So all these little things add up instead of trying to do that big grand gesture. Because mm-hmm. we're our, our society is very good at the grand gesture. I mean, the wedding industry is a billion dollar industry, right? We're good at the grand gestures, right? We know how to buy houses and we know how to have wedding showers and we know how to have baby showers and we know how to do all of those things. What we don't do super well, uh, in my own personal opinion. Well, um, no, in your own personal experience. 
because you've seen a lot of couples. Yes, and families. (laughs) Um, What we don't do well, I think, is be grateful and happy with what is every single day, right? We're always looking forward to those things. Oh, if I can just get to the trip in Mexico, my husband and I will be fine. We'll have a vacation. It'll make it all better. Um, And they don't look at, you know, why are you frustrated with your husband every day? What need do you have that's not being met that's making you so upset? But when we don't, know how to find those things for ourselves, we can't communicate them to other people and it impacts our relationships. So one of the things that I think all of my clients are so sick and tired of hearing from me is you you have to figure out how to curate an inner garden for yourself, a place where you can go when things feel good, bad, stressful, not anytime, and like really be connected to yourself. Go on about this inner garden. <laughs> Um, Because I think oftentimes when people go through challenges or have to make big decisions in their lives, they go to other people. And that's not a wrong thing. Human beings are built and wired for connection. We're built to receive feedback from other people. But the decision ultimately still needs to be yours, right? And I think sometimes people buy houses or marry people or, you know, make those really big life decisions because their mom said it was a good idea. Right, like, oh, my dad liked the house and I didn't really care, so I'll just buy it. So if you don't know who you are, somebody else is going to make the decision for you. Yes, very much so. And then we get disconnected from ourselves. And then what I really saw through the pandemic, actually being a crisis worker, um, was once people's lives slowed down and they had nothing to do but sit in their houses with their families and their own thoughts, it kind of created this environment where people went, what the heck am I doing? How did I get here? I don't know how I ended up with three kids. I don't, I don't even remember. It just all happened so fast, right? And then they think to themselves, well, I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have done that. And all those thoughts and worries and feelings come up because they haven't checked in the whole time to go, is this exactly what I want to be doing right now and why? So that was their first pit stop was COVID. I saw that for lots of people, for sure. Yeah. We put the brakes on the entire system, right? Everyone was forced to slow down. You can't run on autopilot when you're not running. Right. There's no more routine. So you have to develop one and then you face yourself. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) What are some common things couples come to you for? Communication is the big one. Intimacy struggles is another really big one. But again, that just filters down to lack of communication. So it's always communication. Mm -hmm. And the lack of communication most of the time comes from not knowing what we actually want and not being able to ask for it. So you have to understand what you want and how to ask for it. Mm -hmm. What are they generally fighting about? Usually frivolous things. Right. Couples, couples often are fighting about, you know, he always puts his clothes next to the laundry bin instead of in the laundry bin. And I've told him hundreds and hundreds of times not to leave his wallet in his pants. So it goes through the washing machine. It's these little things. But once you start having conversations with these people, you dig deeper and it's not the little things. Women very often don't feel heard in their relationships. We're the old ball and chain. We're the nag, you know, these things that men don't want to come home to because all we do is nag them. But what? What the piece is missing is that we're coming to you with that for a reason. What's the usual reason? It has to be something, it's something that has to be done or it's something that we don't want to think about or it's something that we don't have time to take care of, right? It's not my responsibility to make sure that my partner doesn't have crap in his pockets before I do his laundry. He's a grown man. Oh, so they're taking (laughs) that responsibility on themselves when really 
if your wallet goes to the wash, that's the consequence, man. Exactly. Exactly. And that is probably the way you just phrase that is perfect because that's probably some of the most common advice that that I've given women. But being that, you know, men and women are conditioned very differently when we're young, we're conditioned to make sure that everybody else is okay, right? To take care of other people's feelings, right? So we think to ourselves, oh gosh, if his wallet goes through the washing machine, like he's going to have to get new ID. I'm going to have to help him fill out the forms. Like it's just this big thing that it doesn't need to be if I can just remind him. But there again, we're taking on the emotional responsibility of that and we don't need to. Yeah, but they feel they're doing the right thing. Oh, let's do this preventative measure. Yes, because maybe it'll take some stress off of me later because there's that sense of always being responsible for everything. Um, I listened to a podcast not too long ago and the example that this, this woman used was fantastic. I guess she they had borrowed their neighbor's lawnmower and he was out there mowing the lawn and she noticed that the bag was getting really full. So she goes out there and she says, hey, like bag's getting full. You should probably just empty it. And he's like, no, it's fine. We don't, I don't need to empty the bag. It's fine. Just let me finish. I know what I'm doing. I know how to mow a lawn. Get out of here kind of thing. Right. But they're on two different planets. She's concerned because she's borrowing that item. What happens if I break the lawnmower? Well, then my neighbor's not going to have the lawnmower and they're going to have to get it repaired. We're borrowing it from them. He's on the planet of, I know how to mow a lawn. I know I'm not going to break this machine. Right. They're on completely different planets and neither one of them is wrong. But the bridge that we're missing is being able to be compassionate and understanding on both sides. Yeah. And the reason she's telling him that. Mm-hmm. Most of the time it's perceived as we're, we're nagging or we, we're being critical or we think our partners are dumb. Or those right. kinds of things, yeah. right? <laughs> that comes back to what you were saying about they'll be nagging and things don't get done, but they filter it. So you can hear it all the time in December and then finally it clicks in June. Yep. and they're like hey hon you know what i just thought of we should get a basket for right by the door so we can just put our keys in there and they're never lost and you're like "Uh uh-huh okay (laughs) we talked about that a year ago but i'm proud of you (laughs) what do you see as the main failure in communication among couples that don't make it it's just resistance. And, and again, that resistance can come from so many different things. It can come from challenging upbringings, challenging relationships. It can come from lack of sense of self. It can come from addictions. It can come from lack of ability to cope with stress. It can come from so many different places, but it's, it's the resistance to change. It's the resistance to doing something different, whether you're scared of it, whether you think it's too hard, whether your nervous system's not prepared for it or otherwise. So you have to find what that resistance is. Yeah. So what are the general ones that you've seen? Most of the time, things that are driving people's behavior is nervous systems, not ready for change, not ready for new things, fear, or like feelings of inadequacy, lack of confidence. Oh, so they don't even believe it's possible for them Mm -hmm. or they can be scared to do it. Mm -hmm. And what's the nervous system's not ready? So this comes back to that trauma conversation where when certain things happen to us and there's there's no there's no threshold for that in my mind so in the psychotherapy community there are thresholds for it they have adverse childhood experiences scales and quizzes that you you can go through with clients to say like these things happen to you therefore you're more predisposed to mental health and physical health disorders wait so what do you mean threshold so there needs to be a certain amount to no. have an effect or what I think just within the scientific community, they really like to have like 
boxes for things. When when they're doing research and they're looking for these things to be clinically proven or effective for treatment, perhaps, they'll look at particular things. So they'll say, okay, this treatment is is effective for people who have had you know, domestic violence in their lives or who have had addictions in their lives or have gone through these particular kinds of things, right? Because you you collect those people for a focus group to see if treatment is effective. So therefore, moving forward, the language around trauma typically tends to group towards particular things, right? Towards childhood type things, tragic events like car accidents, those kinds of things. But what I think I've started to notice is those There are smaller things that can happen to us that feel a bit traumatic to our nervous systems too, not nearly to the same degree, but, you know, working really, really hard through school to, to get to a career that you want and then doing the work and hating it, right? That, that's a, that's a challenging thing to go through. You go, you work so hard through school, you take on a student loan, you're so excited for four or five years and then you start your career and you hate it. Like that's devastating, right? And then what confidence do you have in your decisions moving forward? right? How do I know that I want to do this instead? I thought that I wanted to do this to start with. And it creates a mistrust in ourselves. When we have a mistrust in ourselves, the amygdala has a tendency to jump in because it's saying, nope, this person needs help protecting themselves. They need help feeling safe. I'm going to jump in and make sure that they're always safe. And this hypervigilance happens. So then you won't trust yourself if you've had evidence contrary of it. Makes it harder, right? Some people are much, much more resilient, not from a place of it being a choice because mental resilience, I don't, I don't know that it always is. For example, there are lots of studies done and books written on twins or, or sets of siblings that grew up in the same family or the same, um, household circumstance and just went off to do completely different things. One's an engineer and one you never know where that other one ended up or if they're even okay. Gabor Mate is probably one of the most world-renowned trauma experts at this time. And they, they haven't been able to figure out what creates that mental resilience for people, how some people can find the strength and find the coping and find their footing and, and kind of trudge forward and why that's so much harder for other people. Humans are just too complex, I think, to put anybody in boxes like that. Yeah. <laughs> What have you seen in resilient people? The ability to pivot, the ability to forgive themselves, the ability to trust themselves, giving themselves permission to change their minds, being able to ask for help, not being judgmental of others, because that oftentimes means they won't be as judgmental of themselves as well. Having a good set of healthy habits and a good community probably off the top of my head would be big, big contributing factors to that. So if you trust yourself... That can go a long way. Oh, absolutely. Because then, you know, you go to a therapist and you go, okay, I trust that this person is going to be good for me. And you sit down and you listen to them and they go, okay, you know what, Tony, I see that these things are happening for you. So I want you to try X, Y, and Z. And I want you to come back in two weeks and we'll see how you're feeling. So your brain goes, okay, we've trusted this person. We picked them. We like them. They're telling us that this is going on for us. So what we're going to do is we're going to listen. We're going to go, yep. Okay. We trust this person. So we trust what they say. So we're going to actually try it for two weeks and we're going to actually go back in two weeks and tell them how we feel and see if it worked. But if there's that mistrust piece there, right, they'll go, well, I don't even know if this counselor's any good. How do I know if I picked the right one? What if I just picked a dud and they don't really know? What if I try this and it doesn't work? What if I try it and I'm not good at it? What if I don't do it right? So they won't even start. Most of the time, yeah. So then this ability to pivot, how's that look? For those instances in life where you bump into something and you go, oh, I thought I had the answer here. 
I don't have the answer anymore. <laughs> what am I going to do? <laughs> right. And, and not falling into a pit of despair. Right. And going, I can't do anything if I can't make this decision. Right. Not to say that we're not entitled to the emotional experience of that. Right. Because sometimes you bump into those, those things of I thought moving here would be a great choice or I thought this boyfriend was a great choice. And you bump into something and you're like, well, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's OK to feel all those feelings of, of grief or of frustration or of resentment those feelings are okay they can come in waves but we have to make sure we let them go as well so that we can continue to move forward and go okay well that sucked but i guess that wasn't meant for me so i'm going to try something different oh so to understand that decision wasn't permanent yes permanent's a great word tony because so many people they think uh, or they feel because it's not a logical thought but they feel like everything they do is do or die right if i choose to move to Australia to be with this guy for a year that that means I'm living there forever well no it doesn't you can change your mind and come back it's okay oh that's where that other piece where you're talking about you you have the right to change your mind yes and make mistakes and make a mess this life is here to be experienced not for you to do right it's not a test (laughs) in my mind yeah well that's put quite well it isn't a test because you decide the answers yes (laughs) So, Michaela, is there anything I haven't asked you? Uh, I don't think so. (laughs) You asked me so many questions today. (laughs) Sounds good. Should we call it? Yeah.